Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning is Psalm 19. Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their measuring line goes out throughout all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect. Reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you that you speak, and we thank you that when you speak, things happen. And so we come to your word again. We confess that we need something to happen. We consider ourselves and the world around us, and it does feel, as Zach said, like a bad motel at times, and so we pray that you would begin your renovating work even now. We pray that you would continue your reviving mission even now, and we pray that it might begin in us, that we would bring our hearts and lives before you in repentance and faith, that you might beautify them, that you might transform them that you might give them great deep purpose in you and for the sake of your kingdom. For it's in the name of your Son we pray, asking that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. As we look at Psalm 19, we realize that God speaks. As we look at Psalm 19, we see that God speaks in two ways, of which we have just sung as we sang, Fairest Lord Jesus. We see in verses 1 to 6 that God speaks in one good way, a way that we can so easily miss, a way that we dare not forget that God has a good word for us throughout all creation. And then beginning in verse 7 and running through the end of the psalm, we see that God speaks in a still greater way 
through his law, his instruction, his holy word. A way that brings life, a way that brings blessing, a way that really does bring change into our very hearts. And so as we walk through Psalm 19, I want you to catch that movement of God's gift from good to great, from the kindness of His blessing to us throughout all His creation, to that special blessing that He has for us in His Holy Word. And I hope that in in catching that, you'll realize that His Holy Word is something that we ought to turn to with ever greater regularity, even then we take in the glories of this world. Because it points us not only in gratitude to receive this world and every kindness within it, but to look for that greater world. To place our hopes on that heavenly city. To willingly give up those earthly pleasures that we might pursue with greater resolve, with deeper joy, That satisfaction that's ours in God alone. Well, let's begin with the good word of creation in verses 1 to 6. Notice the way that the psalm begins by speaking of creation. We, of course, talk about this world. We talk about nature. You hear of Mother Earth. You, You hear and we've sung of the lands and the nations and the skies and the seas. And if you pay attention to the way in which the earth or the world is talked about in the news, say, or in documentaries, uh, if you pick up a National Geographic, you'll find that most often it's something that simply is, and that sometimes is spoken of as passively receiving the actions of others. And so we often describe the world as something that just is. The mountains are there. The ocean is this big. Sort of a a state of affairs, a static reality. Where there's action and change, we tend to speak or hear of it as something that's being done to the earth. I just read a a remarkably scientific text yesterday with my four-year-old, the Berenstein Bears, and pollution. I learned in a a very refined sense what happens when you throw the Coke can out the side of the car door on I-95. You are doing something to the earth, right? And run that through thousands upon thousands of times, and your neighborhood and your state and your world looks a bit different, right? We speak of what we do to the earth. But notice what the psalm says. The earth is not static. It's not still. And the earth is not simply taking the blows that we land upon it. The earth is doing something. Notice the verbs here in verses 1 to 6. The heavens declare. The sky above proclaims. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. The psalm wants us to realize that the earth The environment, the creation is here to do something. It is not simply here so that you can do other things, but it is here to do something to you, to speak to you of another, to speak for another to you, to proclaim God, to draw out that kind of awe and wonder, to elicit that kind of amazement 
That we not run through the daily affairs, the monotony of the everyday, without catching the size and the scope and the wonder and the glory of it all. I'm reminded of the words of an old pastor, Pastor John Ames in Marilyn Robinson's Pulitzer Prize winning novel, Gilead, and he's a a fairly older pastor and he knows he's about to die from a heart condition and he has a young son who has come into his life only late in his life and so he's writing words to his son that he knows he'll never be able to live to say. And as he stares out over the fields of Iowa from his front porch, he jots down in that journal this. He says, wherever you turn your eyes, the world can shine like transfiguration. You don't have to bring a thing to it except a little willingness to see. But who would have the courage to see it? Isn't that beautiful? The world can shine like transfiguration. Only who would have eyes to see it? And let's be honest, he was talking about Iowa. (laughs) Can you imagine if he was in Vero? I don't know what the image or metaphor would be, but it would be grander and more glorious, no doubt. The world can shine like transfiguration. That image of wonder coming in and overabundantly exceeding the frame of what's normally there. Remember that occurrence when Moses experienced that kind of transfiguration in Exodus 3 when he's wandering through the wilderness. And there's a bush, and bushes are beautiful, and many of you take care of your gardens, except this bush was beautiful in a, a altogether transfigured way. It burnt, but it was not consumed, and Moses was awestruck. And it caught his attention. Or remember in Matthew 17, where the disciples saw the human body, the frail, by all accounts, the unexceptional body of Jesus, transfigured, drawing out the wonder of the divine presence here in a human frame, showing the glory that was there even in a mortal body that would eventually die. The psalmist doesn't want us to overlook God's commitment to this world, to creation, to be present in and through the everyday, through the size and scope of the universe, and through the wonder of the small flower petal, through the depths of the deep seas and all the creatures that we will never even actually see, but we're told do exist down there in all their variety and diversity to the consistent faithfulness of the dog who comes and sits by your feet again and again and again and again. That the heavens tell the glory of God. The sky above proclaims His handiwork. That we are meant to see and experience and take in this world as pointing beyond itself. As alerting us to something more significantly beyond ourselves. That is a good word from creation. But there's a greater word. And we read on, beginning in verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, 
enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Notice just a couple things about the language there in those six statements. First, we want to catch the the lead word, the law of the Lord. We tend to think about the word law in what typically is a a sort of narrow way. When when I say law, you think, or maybe this says more about me, I think of a Florida highway patrolman. (laughs) Perhaps some of you are there with me, but that's my everyday reality, not everyday reality, but that's my common understanding of the law. I think of the Florida highway patrolman. When you think of law, when our culture speaks of law, and when most of us Christians think of law, we think of commands and rules and regulations, of do this and avoid that, of go here and not so fast. And we think of personal engagement as only really occurring when you step outside the lines, when you go a few miles too fast, and when you have infringed on some sort of order, some sort of rule. That tends to be the way we read that word. And that's not inappropriate, because I'm here to tell you, among many other things, the Florida Highway Patrol exists. And because the Bible speaks of the law in that way. You will hear of God's law as certain parameters within which you're to live and move and have your being. And when you step outside them, God will be present so as to punish. We observe that in the stories of Israel's existence in the Old Testament at times. We hear that from the words of the Apostle Paul as he sometimes confronts those who think they might live according to ceaselessly and immaculately obeying all the rules and regulations and thus incurring God's gratitude and favor. But that is neither the only nor even the most common use of the word law in the Bible. And that's certainly not the use of the word law here or in virtually the entire Psalter. When we encounter the word law in the Psalms, we encounter something that is much broader It includes regulations like don't go kill people randomly, but it much more deeply instructs us in the way of wisdom. It instructs us in the path of wholeness before God and with one another. We see that even here in verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect. It's another word that we can easily misperceive. Sometimes we take perfect to mean something that is sinless and immaculate. It is without any error, flaw, or problem. And that, too, is a biblical meaning of the word perfect, but that's not the most common meaning of the word perfect in the Bible. The word perfect in the Bible most commonly, as here, means whole or complete. It's the word that gets used to describe a plant, an animal, or a human being who is mature. It doesn't mean that the dog never bites you. It simply means the dog is full-grown and mature. It's developed. They have grown up. It doesn't simply mean that the human never makes any mistakes. It speaks, rather, to having grown and experienced and become an adult, a mature adult, a, a whole adult. 
That's why in Hebrews 5, we can learn that Jesus, who was always sinless, was made perfect through his sufferings. He didn't get sent to reform school by Joseph and Mary. They didn't have to write the wayward past that he was living, but he was still immature. He was sinless, but he was immature because he hadn't grown up yet. Because as Luke 2 tells us, he had to grow up in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man because he was human, and to be human is to be immature and to develop into maturity, into wholeness or completeness. And here we're told the instruction, the law of the Lord is whole, is complete. It includes everything we need to know that we too might be whole or complete before God. That we too, in every sphere of our lives, might entrust ourselves to God, might lean upon God's grace, might follow God's direction, might commit ourselves to God's cause. And so when you hear law here, or when you hear it in Psalm 1, the righteous man who listens to the law, or you proclaim it as we already have responsively from Psalm 119 as we herald the joys and the, the glories of leaning upon God's instruction and His law, remember that you're not just delighting in commands. It's a word that takes in all of Scripture, all of God's instruction, all of the wisdom that He recounts to us. That's the first thing we've got to catch. What does law mean here? It means all of God's holy word. All of God's instruction for our lives. Notice the second thing, though, about the greatness of God's law. The greatness of God's word. It was pretty striking to catch the verbs in verses 1 and 2. That the heavens, they proclaim. They declare. They pour forth. That creation speaks of God. Notice the verbs here, beginning in verse 7. Reviving, making wise, rejoicing, enlightening. These verbs don't simply speak of God communicating, but of God changing. You catch that? Those of you who are parents, those of you who are employers... You will have experienced this. It is, it is one thing to have said it and to have communicated it. It is another thing to have actually changed the situation so that there has been a real transfer of understanding. It's one thing for me to say to someone else, I think this. It's another thing altogether for them to actually grasp it, to hold it to be true, to think it worthy of, of understanding and appreciating and, and living. We experience this in life in all sorts of ways. To declare is one thing. To actually accomplish something is another. Notice, just as the world declares and proclaims, it's only the word that revives, that makes wise, that rejoices, and that enlightens. In other words, there is a unique promise. There's a unique promise on this book. There's a unique promise that this book, by God's grace, is the means or the tool or the instrument through which not only do you hear true things, 
but they change you. They work upon you. They do not leave you the same. That's why in Hebrews 4 we'll read that God's word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, that it will pierce right within, bone and marrow, soul and spirit, that it will cut us to the quick. Notice it doesn't say that it will pierce them. It doesn't say that it's the tool that we get to use to hit that person over there or to somehow get them over here, but it addresses us. It cuts within. Socrates spoke of how the unexamined life wasn't worth living. One of the glories of the gospel is that not only do we have the the calling to the examined life and the life that's worth living, but that God provides the means that we might be examined. That as we read the Bible, we are not putting God under the microscope, as it were, but God is putting our very souls under the microscope. That God is not only examining and diagnosing, but he is performing surgery upon us. He is fitting us for a fuller, flourishing life ahead. He's transforming us. I think if we're honest, this is where we tend to pull back. The idea that God's law would do stuff to us tends to conflict with what has been sort of our M.O., the way we do things in this country for decades. And we could always blame it on the kids, whoever the kids are to you, the younger generation. But, I mean, this goes all the way back. You don't need to think, you know, about millennials and social media and the way people are behaving today to understand why we, we sort of pull back and are almost offended at the idea of God's Word changing us, God's law changing us. You can think all the way back to that really traditional music of Frank Sinatra. Singing what? My way. I did it my way. Right? If you danced to that years ago, you don't ever get to blame a 20-something for their individualism. Right? That's the catch. It's been around for a long time in all sorts of ways. That our culture is deep in the idea that we're going to determine our own path. We're going to make of ourselves what we want. No one's going to hold us back. And Frank sang of it so beautifully. And now pretty much every Disney movie commends that idea to small children that that you're going to do what you want, you're going to be who you want, forget everyone else. That's so thick in our culture. And so it's not surprising that when we hear words like this, that God's law is going to change us. That just sounds strange, if not odd. What do we make of that? I think we ought to reflect on that briefly. And I think there's three things we can see. The the first is this, that for all our talk, particularly in, in this country with a history of opportunity, that we ought to admit that for all our talk about having all the options in the world and getting to define our own path in life, that clarity is actually really good. I trust all of you have had experience that I've had settling into a job or perhaps training others in a job. Just a couple weeks ago, I was working with some new employees, and it was amazing to observe in every case, as they'd heard of something that they were going to have to do in the abstract, 
It had an overwhelming effect. And as soon as I could take them through a sequence of steps so they understood the basic parameters of what they were to do, even though I had just heaped 37 steps that they're going to do, it was remarkably clarifying. Because they knew what they had to do and they knew what they didn't have to worry about. Clarity is good. When we don't have any direction, when we're left simply to make of ourselves our own pathway, our own good, it's overbearing. It's anxiety-producing. It is inhumane because we're not made to live that way. Clarity is good. And so it's not surprising, secondly, that we see the psalm go where it does in verses 10 and 11. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. That, that God's law, God's instructions are for our good. They're to be savored. They're delightful. Why? Verse 11, by them we are warned, and in keeping them there's great reward. In other words, they, they point us to where we will find satisfaction, and they warn us away from where we will falter and spin out. They keep us from harm and they lead us to flourishing. Because the one who gives them, the writer of the law, the author of this book, ultimately is the one who knit you together, who made you. I'm reminded of when I bought my first car. We had a problem. I I did what you're supposed to do. You know, I, I took my dad with me, first of all, because I don't know what I'm doing. And we, we go to the used car lot, and then we take it to a mechanic to have it checked out, bargain the guy down, make a good purchase, and I leave smiling. A year later, I'm not smiling, because I've been at another mechanic, and we've observed that at some point, before I bought this car, this Ford, someone has put a Mazda engine in the Ford car. Life does not work well when you've got a Ford car with a Mazda engine. Things went terribly wrong. And so I and the car spent our time with many mechanics in months and years to come. We are made, we are made to live by God's design. And when we live by our own design, it's just as harmful as when you put the wrong engine in the car. Things start to rattle and shake And they don't quite connect right. And before long, you've wasted all your money. And forget a bad motel. You're sitting in bad waiting rooms in repair shops. It's unpleasant. God's word is sweeter than honey. It's more to be desired than gold. Because it's the word. It's the operating system. It's the direction manual. It's the wisdom from the one who made us. And it's for our good. And it's to lead us away from our bad. But there's a third thing that we see. I think if we're honest, we would say it's not just that we're sometimes tempted to think God's law is going to constrict us. It's going to make us like all those people. Maybe all those religious people. Maybe all those boring people. Or maybe worse, the narrow-minded people. The folks who are arrogant, who think they've got it all together. Who look down on others who present like the Pharisees and the hypocrites, and we don't want to be like them. Notice the last thing that this text says about what the law of the Lord does. 
Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. The law of the Lord, the instruction of the Lord, confronts the two ways where we go astray. When I do stupid this week, and I will do stupid this week, when I do wrong this week, and I will invariably do wrong this week, I'm doing it for one of two reasons. Either I'm being presumptuous, or I'm misperceiving. And notice both are addressed here. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Often, I do it thoughtlessly. I just act impulsively, intuitively. And not surprising, sinner that I am, my intuitions are often wrong. My impulses are sometimes in error. My reaction time isn't appropriate. My perception of the situation isn't full. My prioritization is thrown off. I make a bad intuitive judgment. I presume and I just act and I do this. I don't consult my spouse. I don't consult uh, my church. I don't consult my friends and family and neighbors. I don't consult God's word. I simply go it alone as though I will surely, surely figure out the right thing to do. And presumption is the way of pride. And it's the way so often of pain. But there's another way, a second way, that we go astray. Sometimes we really think. We want to we make the right decision. We want to do the right thing. And we reflect. But what's the catch when I try and do the calculus and think through the strategy of, of what would be the righteous thing, the just thing, the loving and merciful thing to do? I'm still the person doing the calculating. And it's often not right because I'm a sinner. Because I'm selfish. Because I'm impatient. Because my imagination isn't wide enough to take in God's presence and glory and grace always. And so oftentimes, even when I'm trying to be religious and spiritual and obedient, I'm misperceiving what that looks like. And notice, David's got a prayer here. Who can discern his errors? It's no good if you're left to yourself, if your strategy is all based on your own internal calculus. You need a word that is going to search you. You need an instruction that's going to cut to the quick. And so God's law, far from making us into arrogant persons who look down on others, who think we have it all together, God's law is a grace for those who know that their presumption and their miscalculation will lead them into all sorts of places they don't want to go. And so they will return to it again and again and again. Reminded of a story, I think I've mentioned it to you a couple years ago, but I don't remember, so I'll trust you don't remember. <laughs> but it's from one of my favorite TV shows, The West Wing, and there's this moment where President Bartlett, uh, played by Martin Sheen, is speaking to an an elderly senator, and the senator offers a proverb to him, and it stuck with me for years. He speaks of a a friend who's an airman on the California coast, and he speaks of flying through storms along the, the ocean coast there, and how your plane, any modern plane, of course, has all sorts of instrumentation. 
though you can't see in the clouds, though you can't see in the rain, you can look at the instrumentation, you can know where you are, you can know how high you are, you can know the pitch, you can know where you are relative to the airport and other planes. And yet, he describes how young pilots taking off in private jets will invariably start to doubt the instruments. They just won't feel right. And they will adjust. And it still won't feel right. And they will adjust. And they really want to get it right, so they will adjust. And he says, you would be amazed how many people fly out of those clouds past the airfield flying completely upside down. (laughs) And friends, that's why we need God's law. And that's why it's whole. And that's why we rejoice that it revives us. That's why we delight that it makes us wise. That's why we're grateful that it rejoices us. That's why we're thankful that it enlightens us. Because it's God's means to draw us out of our presumption. It's God's tool to work upon our miscalculation. It's God's gift to transform not just the sinful world out there, but also the sinful crevices, the nooks and crannies of darkness that remain within here. That we too might walk in the light a bit more. Let's pray and ask God that he might do that for us. Lord, we do thank you for your word. We're grateful. We journey through the clouds and the rain, and at times they seem so thick and overwhelming. And we think to run and we think to hide, and we are grateful that you come to us and that you offer a word for us and that you long to carry and lead us forward. Help us to lay our own wisdom at your feet. Help us to lay our own dreams at your feet. Help us to receive anew this very day your instruction, your word, your law, that we might learn from Jesus, Jesus who goes before us, Jesus who is our Savior. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable before your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen.